Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Galatians. As we begin a new series, spend the next few months at least in this great letter. If you're using one of the blue Bibles uh, there in the back, I believe it's page 565. Or you can just uh, look right behind me, I think. Yep. So Galatians chapter 1 this morning, verses 1 through 5. And so Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come this morning. We want to have our hearts set under your word and under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And yet we also want to confess that the entire basis of such mercy towards us right now is not in ourselves, it's not because we're righteous, uh, but because you are righteous. Not because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy. Have mercy upon us right now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I recently came across a notable trend related to confessions of faith, which I'm sure will be stirring for all of you. (laughs) The basic idea was that Christian creeds started rather basically, no surprise. But then as error arose and infiltrated the churches, uh, truth demanded convictional clarification. It required more nuance. It required expansion through biblical explanation, and as it did, our confessions of faith became thicker. Our articulation of the faith only grew more substantial, and it only grew more substantial because in the end, we really cared about the truth of the Bible. So there's a a train or a trail of saints that were before us who cared about preserving the truth and preserving the church with the truth 
from all of the errors introduced to bring it all the way to the ground. What then might it mean that over the past century or so of human history, churches have tended to move away from a more muscular Christianity to a less is more way of thinking in the context of the church? What might it mean that our affirmations are getting uh, skinnier and, and slighter and more broad, or that our convictions have become less convictional? Might it mean that we've tired of truth? Might it indicate a worldliness that hasn't the time to give to believing really anything that has the potential to alienate us or ostracize us or bring persecution upon us? Might it imply a certain comfort level with error? Because, sure, it's unbiblical, but since when did believing propositional error become a matter of life and death and heaven and hell? Uh, only from the beginning, friend. Genesis 2 and 3. So let me just give you some wisdom as we start out. If a church is a mile wide and an inch deep, believing little to nothing with any conviction, and making nothing of your responsibility to know and love the truth well enough to articulate it and to defend it, you need to run. Such an assembly is one where Bible-canceling, gospel-nullifying, soul-killing error is most able to exist, to live, to eventually thrive, and do its worst. So let me ask us, how well do we, how well do you this morning know the one and only gospel. Silence. Can you, as a Christian, contend for the truth of justification? And would you? The doctrine of justification is at the very heart of the gospel. But do you know what it is? And what of sanctification? If I was to, big word here, heretically, if I was to heretically confuse justification and sanctification, would you know it? And if so, would you be able to preserve the truth of the Scriptures on those things for the sake of souls? And as you do that, on the basis of what authority? Do you and I know God's grace the way that the Apostle Paul believes churches must? They must. Welcome to Galatians. Let's get into it and consider first why Christ's churches should, must listen of course, the implication there is that there were some who were bringing that very thing into question. 
Some were telling these churches here in Galatia that they should not listen to Paul. So Galatians, first thing you need to know about it is, it is a polemical letter. It's not just a defense of the truth of the one gospel. It is an offensive. It's an apostolic offensive against doctrinal error. Doctrinal error. It's a rebuttal that's being mounted against real opponents. But, the source and nature of that opposition may or may not be surprising. Uh, it's not the picketing of pagans outside the church walls. It's likely coming from people who would self-identify as Christians. And so have no problem calling Jesus Christ. The enemy here is inside the churches. It's an internal theological operation with lots of implications that they think, listen now, they think is honoring to God. In short, in short, here it is. If asked, they'd have no problem in their own minds with the authority of Scripture or again, even faith in Jesus. Okay, They have no problem with those things. The problem is, faith in Jesus, they argue, was not enough to fully justify sinners in the sight of God. That's it. The work of Jesus and the God-given faith that unites us to Jesus and to the work of Jesus was not sufficient in itself to make us full heirs of God, fully justified sons and daughters of God. Faith in Christ needed supplementing. It needed additional merits. It needed more, just think on this for a second, it needed more than divine grace. It needed human grounds. It needed flesh-based law-keeping. Really, what they're arguing is that in order to be a real Christian, for all intents and purposes, you had to become ritually Jewish, even if you were Gentile. You had to be circumcised. You had to keep the law of Moses. You had to keep festival. You had to fall back into the shadows of Christ, and you had to stay in the shadows of Christ. The coming of Christ and the ministry of Christ in the world to these folks had not changed any of that. If anything, it had reaffirmed it for them. So to leave Moses behind in those ways because of Jesus' sufficiency was to these individuals, listen now again, really big word, it was to them heresy. Paul's gospel of Christ's all-sufficient grace, they argued, was in all-critical error. And if they're right, we're wrong. But if we're right with the Apostle Paul, it's actually them that are quite wrong. And again, heretically so. So, 
What unfolds in Galatians is not exactly a friendly debate. As one put it, I'll quote at length here, surely Paul, I think this would be argued by a lot of people in our day, surely Paul ought to have made common cause with teachers who were so nearly in agreement with him. Applying to them the great principle of Christian unity. But Paul did nothing of the sort. And only because he and others did nothing of the sort does the Christian church exist today. Paul saw, continuing the quote, very clearly that the difference between them, these opponents, and him was that between two entirely distinct types of religion. It was the difference between a religion of merit and a religion of grace. And Paul certainly was right, this guy says. The dividing difference was no mere theological subtlety, but concerned the very heart and core of the religion of Jesus Christ. Simply put, do our good works lead in any degree to our full-on justification with God? Or do they only, if ever, proceed from it? You get that wrong, Paul's going to argue, you've got the gospel wrong. So, is the grace of faith in Christ crucified enough to establish a right relationship with God for all eternity? That's the question. And Paul fights like heaven to preserve yes and amen for you and me. But why should we listen to Paul? They're saying Paul's message is merely human. Paul's message is merely human. (laughs) Paul's gospel is not God's gospel. Paul is actually the false teacher. Paul is the imposter. Whatever you do, do not listen to Paul. And Paul's opening response to that is our verses 1 and 2. That Against these opponents, he wants to be instantly clear. I am an apostle, but not from men, nor through man. He's not an apostle because people thought he'd done enough to earn that office. It was not an office that was conferred on him for having an exemplary record in the cause of Jesus Christ. It wasn't from men, nor... Was it the eventual outcome of who Paul knew or who Paul knows? It wasn't an honor given to him by association. He was not an apostle on the basis of family descent or pedigree or ties or things like rabbinical tutorship. Who taught Paul? 
It was not through man. He did not work his way into this office. He didn't have it gifted to him because of who his daddy was. It did not come by things in which men love to boast and people love to place their stock in all their souls. I see on the church sign out there, Brian Mann, Ph.D. Must be good. Ph.D., you see those letters? Must be good. I'll lend an ear to that. Whatever he has to say, it's got to be smart. We love that stuff. And here's the thing. I'm not a Ph.D. But whatever you could have had to be impressive and gain a serious hearing in this day, Paul had it and could have boasted in it. In fact, if you go to Philippians chapter 3, he does just that. He doesn't boast in it, but he lists all of his qualifications according to the flesh. Uh, Paul could have been a whale of an agent for the Galatian heresy if he'd only convert to it. Thankfully, you see in Philippians chapter 3, he found Christ enough to count all of that stuff as loss. Do we think Paul was an apostle because he was so accomplished as a Christian? You know, in a critical way, he was distinct even from the other apostles. The other apostles... They at least lived for a few years in the greatest seminary the world has ever known. They were three years walking around with Jesus Christ. But Paul's apostleship, how did that happen? When did that come about? It came about on his way to persecute Christians. To afflict them to drag them to prison. You heard what Indrajit read in the call to worship. To cast his lot against them that they should be put to death. That's what he's going to do in Acts chapter 9. So he was mid-stride, not as this awesome apostle and Christian and missionary. It's mid-stride as the chief of sinners. Mid-stride, as a blasphemer, as he calls himself. It is mid-stride as an insolent opponent of Jesus Christ. He was worse than the people that he's refuting in Galatians. They're saying, yeah, faith in Jesus, that's good. We just got to add some stuff to it. Paul didn't believe that. He hated Jesus. He was worse than them. So, it was when... In the gracious will of God, the risen Jesus appeared to this poor soul on the road to Damascus. Paul's commissioning as an apostle was in, was simultaneous, with his undeniable conversion at the hands of our living Lord. Paul's apostleship and his authority then with Christ's churches is entirely derivative of the grace and the call of God upon him through Jesus Christ. 
You remember what he says in 1 Corinthians 15? I am what I am by the grace of God. That's it. The grace of God. So, however initially counterintuitive, we should listen to Paul because he's a man who knew Jesus as a dead man. And probably rejoiced to know Jesus as a dead man. Paul was not a Christian. He certainly had no expectation of having that dead man run up on him. (laughs) And that was with reports of resurrection flying all around him. Ah, Paul heard all that, continued resisting, continued insisting, continued persisting. Nothing was changing or rerouting Pharisee Paul, except something did. God the Father raised the crucified and buried Jesus from the dead. And that Jesus, in a display of utterly free and sovereign grace, regenerated the Apostle Paul and sent him on his way as this official representative, as an apostle of the risen king. So there is no explanation for who Paul turned out to be except the risen Jesus. That's it. And that's why Christ's churches must listen to Paul. Paul received his call and gospel from the risen Christ. What glorious implication that has for us. As God's resurrection of Jesus authored Paul's apostolic status, giving divine authority to his teaching. Paul's teaching, as we're going to have it here in Galatians, is everywhere servant to the fact that Jesus, having accomplished the saving work God gave him to do, has been raised from the dead. So, you're not going to read a line of this letter, but that line preaches Jesus is alive. Every line we read and study together says He lives. It says God has counted Christ's work to be sufficient and faith in Him sufficient for our salvation. That's amazing. If we need more than this, for why we should listen to Paul's correctives, he gives us verse 2. He basically says, it's not like I'm out here on Christ alone island all by myself. Other Christians on the mission field, hearing Paul's message, conversing with Paul from day to day, existing under his leadership, are in this gospel boat with Paul as they move from one place to another place to another place. Paul is truly humble. All these brothers with me are brothers. They know the Lord. They know the gospel. And they could and would correct me if I were in error. But in more than one way, I want you to know that these brothers over here, they're with me. Sometimes in trying to win a debate, 
you isolate your opponent. You see this all the time in politics. No one else believes what Paul believes. Just Paul. And Paul's response to that is, actually, we all believe what I received from the risen Lord. So Christ's churches should listen to Paul. But now, what do they need to hear? And what do they need to heed? Paul lays the beautiful groundwork for all of Galatians in verses 3 to 5. Speaking on behalf of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul leads like this. Grace to you and peace. That pairing is the first point that these churches need to hear and heed. If anything was ever necessary and best suited for the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of sinners saved, it is this. Grace to you and peace from God through the divine Christ. It's grace for your sins and it's then peace for your conscience. In Jesus Christ, I am, can you believe it, righted and received by God, not just for a little while, but for now and for all eternity. And so one I read this week said simply this, Grace, as Paul uses it, is the sum of the Christian message. While the great Martin Luther said these two terms, grace and peace, true peace, constitute Christianity. Okay, Are they that foundational to you and me? Grace and peace. Grace and peace. We have to say it over and over again because we just don't, we have a hard time really believing it. Grace and peace. It's heaven's standing salutation to Christ's churches on down to you. And I want us to understand then that such a greeting is more than a one-off. It's more than even just seasonal, sort of blowing with the winds of our own doings. Believe it or not, what's said is said. Again, this is so fundamental to the one true gospel. What's said here is said not on the present state of our admittedly inconsistent lives but on the permanent state of our soul's everlasting union with the absolutely perfect Christ. Grace has brought us into a peaceable state of being and relating to God that's just hard for us to believe. And do you know why? Because 
though we are now in a whole new world, to quote from Aladdin, we have a hard time breaking free from this works-based paradigm that dominates this present evil age. Some of it is unavoidable. We have tests. We have exams. We have competitions. If you join me on the sideline of a flag football game, you'll find out. Okay? We're trying to get in somewhere, but there's limited space. We've got to work really hard to get in. So we take performance enhancements. There are standards. There are metrics. We've got to measure up. That's our whole life. We live in that kind of jealousy sandwich. Acceptance is hard to come by. And a permanent welcome is nigh impossible. It certainly can't be free to us against everything in us. Our moral metrics at the expense of another one. Well, actually, concerning the most critical exam involving a perfect score and standard of judgment, it can be that free. And we find that hard to keep in front of us because we've grown used to spending a lot of time looking at ourselves and comparing ourselves against others and in some instances liking very much what we see while also hating a whole lot of what we see. And we spend little to no time looking at Jesus and the God-pleasing perfection of His obedience that He has freely, at greatest price to Himself, afforded to you and to me. So let's just get this out of the way when it comes to the gospel. Our lives are sinful. They don't measure up at all. They don't meet the specs of heaven's entry exam. So what you see in the verses here, or don't see it because they're not there, our good works are completely absent from these first few verses. You know what is prominent? Our sins. So, our sins are prominent. The only good work that Paul mentions is the great work then of Jesus for us. And upon His work for us, the word that comes from the Apostle Paul is grace to you and peace. Well, I don't know, Brian. You don't know me. I'm really bad. Sin is everywhere I turn, and I bite. It feels like I'm on the precipice of apostasy, 
hell is opened wide beneath me. And as my feet are slipping in that direction, surely this grace and peace are going with it, out the door. Dear one, I doubt that you're more sinful than me. Or the chief of sinners, like Paul. Or churches that are moonwalking towards the precipice of apostasy. Yet I, per Paul, say to you, as he says to these churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is incredible. These churches are not awesome. They're biting on heresy. And Paul's like, grace from God and peace. If I say it once, I'll gladly say it a thousand times more as we mind this letter together. This pairing of grace and peace does not rest upon your practice. Thank God it rests wholly and entirely upon Christ's work for you. And that's what we see in verse 4. Grace to you and peace from God is not rooted in your subjective performance. That is really good news. Beloved, with that good news, grace to you and peace from God is rooted objectively in the death of Jesus for us just outside of Jerusalem on a Roman cross some 20 centuries ago. Or if I can go further back, even into eternity, this grace to you and peace from God is rooted in the will of God the Father to save us from our sins and make a people for His own glory. It's rooted in the sovereign grace that God manifests concretely in Christ crucified and raised from the dead. So, see, as I said, our great contribution to our salvation. Everybody's wanting to throw in their works and all this kind of stuff. Okay, here's our great contribution to our salvation. It is only in these verses, the Word of God, the sins from which we needed to be saved. That's our contribution. It's the sins that if we would be saved, necessitated on account of their evil, their guilt, and their stain, nothing less than the self-giving of the Son of God for our sins. So the letter is going to bear this out. But this is sort of like Pauline shorthand for the fact that the cross of Christ was a saving act of substitution for our sins. He gave Himself. In our place, condemned he stood. What condemnation he bore, he bore. Oh, to hear it with our hearts. He bore not for sin as some like 
abstract principle or sin as a general idea. The condemnation that he bore, he bore for real sins. Specific sins. He bore for our sins. He bore for your sins. And in doing so, believe it, he did not fail. He didn't leave the task unfinished. He paid the penalty in full. He left nothing at all unpaid. He left nothing undone for you and me to do. How do we know that? We've already heard verse 1. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Do you know why that matters? Do you know why it matters that God raised Jesus from the dead? Because it was enough. That's exactly right. That God raised the crucified Jesus from the dead is unchangeable affirmation that Jesus lived without sin. That He's the only Savior for sinners And that His sin-bearing death on that cross then is the all-sufficient work to deliver every single one of us who believe in Him. Again, the silence. Someone needs to say amen. There you go. Good job. By grace, through faith, Jesus' work embraces us. And we it. And on that basis, we are forgiven our sins. On that basis alone, we are counted righteous with, not any old righteousness, but the perfect obedience of Jesus is pasted Permanently to our account. That's how God sees us. We are declared by God against whom we have sinned, all our sins, justified in His sight through faith in Jesus. But there's more in verse 4. Jesus not only gave Himself for our sins, He did that, what's it say there? With a specific purpose. To deliver us from the present evil age. What does that mean? It means the rest of Galatians. But I'll just say this. It means the justified person will be a really new person. It probably means Jesus did more on the cross than we give Him credit for. That there on the cross, He not only bore the punishment and paid the penalty for our sins, but He also then broke the bondage that we had to sin and crippled its power in the process. He died that you and I might live. He died 
that you and I might be born again. He died that you and I might be united to a risen Savior. He died that you and I might be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He died that you and I might be compelled by the internal and expulsive power of a new affection to, as Paul's going to say, live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Or to use the term Paul gives, He died to deliver, to deliver on a new and holy people in as yet an old and evil age. A risen, living people in a fallen and perishing world. You might remember this from the Old Testament, but as the blood of the lambs was instrumental in delivering Israel out of slavery in Egypt to be a people distinct to the glory of God. The blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, is the instrument of delivering a new Israel, we'll see that in Galatians 6, a new Israel, not out of Egypt, but out of sin, out of the chains of sin and into the true freedom of the children of God. So there is a sense in which we now can and should be not falling in line with the spirit of this age, but living lives to the glory of God. His blood bought that. So justification and sanctification do share a relationship but it's not a justifying one. <laughs> okay? How you live is not part of your justification. But how you live does validate that you have been justified. Yeah. So, question. As we fix our justified gaze on Jesus, still, do we look like those He's delivered from the present evil age? Do we look like the folks around us who have not been delivered? Do we live as heirs of eternal grace? Or is there a whole lot in us that kind of longs to go back to Egypt? Are we friendly towards our former slavery? Have we been sort of rummaging around in the trash can of our past deeds of our spiritual death. Or more subtly, and it is so subtle, however significant, have we slipped back into a grace-erasing, cross-nullifying, gospel-conflicting, soul-afflicting way of thinking about our relationship with God? I know I often do. And it is so easy to do. The Galatians had been bewitched in this very way. Christ is not enough. He's not enough. God's willed work in Jesus is not sufficient for me. I've got to do. I've got to do. I've got to be good enough. I've got to add to what Jesus has done. I've got to get to work. And church, 
God has given us in Galatians an entire letter to Christ's churches to combat that erroneous way of believing because that erroneous way of believing belongs to this present evil age. That kind of thinking is actually anti-Christ. It is against God. It's at enmity with the truth. And listen, it is, by and large, universally prevalent in the world around us. What is, I'm just going to let you all in on something here. I don't think it's a secret. I think it's just so obvious. What is the dominant belief of fallen man? Whatever else we might say about him. Never mind sin. Never mind the Savior. Never mind the Bible. I must, I can be, I think I am able to save myself. To measure up to God. To make my own way to glory. I think that I can be good enough. And at least contribute what apparently Jesus lacks. So look with me at verse 5 and we're done. I want you to see something that I pray helps everything. As an old Puritan, he said, humorously, but seriously, that God is rather touchy about His glory. Okay? Uh, God will not share His glory with you and me. He will not. When it comes to our salvation, you and I get no glory. God's designed it such that we get none of it, and He gets all of it. So hear it and heed it. Self-righteousness. Thinking you're good enough, can be good enough, earning your way, even if Jesus is kind of to the side. Self-righteousness is a self-deception. That is, worlds apart from God's conception of you and what He has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. To the degree that we take glory for our salvation, we move away from the good news of God's grace. All grace to you in Jesus should render all glory to God through Jesus. All of it. We get all the grace. He gets all the glory. That's the deal. And, as we see then in verse 5, God will have all that glory. In this age, and in all ages, times, eternity. And all God's people said, as you see at the close, Amen. Yeah. So friend, why wouldn't you put your soul's Amen truth to that right now?
you think you're too good for such grace or too bad? Or do you just doubt a man in the Apostle Paul whose only explanation is the reality of the crucified and risen Jesus? You just doubt him? I would not. Peace with God is available to you, the sinner, through the grace of Christ. If you believe now in Him, God will receive you forever. Won't you do that? Beloved, as I started out in Galatians this week, here's what I wrote at the top of my journal page, because I like to journal. Lord, let it be the opening of heaven for us again. As we come to this great letter, let it be the opening of heaven to us again. Let us see Christ and Him crucified, in other words, (laughs) with clear-eyed hearts again. Oh God, help us. The series title is Galatians, One Gospel, One Boast. And I, for one, could not be more thankful to have the next several Sundays with you as Christ's church, listening to the Apostle Paul feed us on the all-sufficient grace of God in Jesus Christ. Oh, to not just think we know it, but to know it. Oh, not to just live on a proposition, but to live on this person and His work for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You. And as we head out, we just ask again that You would do precisely that. Let us see with clear-eyed hearts that Christ is the way and the truth and the life. Mm. Let us bathe in your grace, be soaked in it. And all we ask then is that you would get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.